Jonah chapter 1, we're going to continue in our study through this uh, short little minor prophet uh, talking about this subversive servant that uh, was uh, doing everything he could to get out of God's calling and will for his life. Uh, You know, the the main message here, I guess the the main uh, statement that's taking place is God is saying, go, and Jonah is saying, no. Which is an interesting thing. How do you ever say no, Lord? But that's in essence what Jonah is doing. This past week, Kara and I and uh, a lot of other pastors around our state convention had an opportunity to be at a one-night pastor's retreat over in Williamsburg. And so we went over there Tuesday afternoon, came back Wednesday afternoon, and, and uh, got to spend some time uh, just gathered around the Word of God, a time of encouragement, refreshing. And, uh, and so Tuesday night, we were listening to a pastor from... Um, Houston, Texas. His name is Matt Carter. He uh, pastors the Sagemont Church there, but uh, for years he was the founding pastor of the Austin Stone Church there in Austin, Texas. And Matt preached uh, Tuesday evening, and and there in that uh, that session shared a story that I want to share with you this morning because it dovetails so well, it fits so well with uh, what we're talking about, what we're seeing here in the life of of Jonah. And so he shared this story as a way to encourage us as pastors and pastors' wives uh, to remain committed to the Lord's calling on our lives, to not brush that off, to not walk away from that, to not allow that to become dull and dusty, but to continue to have a vibrant fervency for the Lord. And so Matt's story is like this. He started this church, Austin Stone Church, 20 so years ago, uh, uh, um, a couple years ago, left and went to pastor of the Sagemont Church, but four years ago, uh, he began to, to realize that the things were not what they o- used to be. He began to wrestle with the thought of leaving ministry, which is a scary thought. In fact, it's, it's something that happens all too often. We lose a lot of pastors each and every year uh, to the fact that they're just done. They want to leave the ministry. They want to go do something else, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Unfortunately, many times it's because of moral failure, but thankfully in this case, that was not what was happening in Matt's life. In fact, he was experiencing incredible success. There was no moral failure in his life. What he was seeing in his ministry was lost people being saved, lost people being baptized and connected to the church, disciples being made through the, the ministry there at the Austin Stone Church, and, and things were great. His ministerial platform was broadening. He was uh, writing books and getting invited to preach conferences. He was in high demand. And if from, a, uh, from a career standpoint, things couldn't have looked better for Matt Carter. There was no moral decline, no hidden sin in his life. There was just the feeling of a lack of fulfillment. Here's one thing. He didn't say this, but I'm going to say this. Anytime we began to get our eyes off of the Lord and off the Lord's calling and onto these accolades of our lives, they will always leave you empty and wanting more. You, you, as a preacher, you can't preach at all the conferences and think that's going to make you feel wonderful. At some point, it's not going to be enough. And maybe that was the case for Matt. Ministry for him was no longer fun. It had lost its luster. And so Matt was ready to do something different. He was ready for a new challenge. What was once a vibrant walk with the Lord had become reduced to nothing more than numbing work. You see, Matt came to know, I don't know if he came to know the Lord his freshman year of college there at Texas A&M, but that's when the Lord began to transform his life. 
That's where he was discipled. That's where his, his hunger for the Lord grew and, and developed. Those early days of faith, he, he found himself engrossed in the Word of God. He found himself engrossed in pray, prayer with God, time alone with God. He couldn't get enough of God's presence. That's what, that's what consumed his life. So it wasn't long until he began to sense a call in his life. Now, every time we begin to, to really walk with the Lord, that doesn't mean you're called to ministry. We don't need everyone called to ministry. We need some of us called to ministry, but in reality, we're all called to some form of ministry. You just may not get paid for it. But for Matt, here's a guy who was a pre-med major. He kind of grew up um, lower middle class and really wanted to make a lot of money. And so he decided, I'm going to be a doctor who's a pre-med major. His sights were set on how much money can I make? How big of a career can I have? And then all of a sudden he begins to sense the Lord calling him to full-time Christian ministry. And the thoughts go through his head of, man, I remember the pastor I grew up under in high school, and I remember he didn't seem that rich. And so you're a guy that's got your sights set on wealth and prestige and big homes and, and boats and all of those things. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I didn't say that for effect. I'm just saying there's nothing wrong with those things. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evils. Not those things, not money being evil. But he has his sights set for that. God begins to draw his heart toward ministry, and he's thinking, I'm going to have none of that. I'm going to be, I don't have two nickels to rub together if I go into the ministry. So he's wrestling with this, wrestles for about a year with this calling, finally on a, on a deserted road, headed to the Dallas area to spend some time with his girlfriend, now wife. God really just brought him to a place of surrender, and he yielded to the call of ministry. So he went to seminary, and then he planted the Austin Stone Church there outside of Austin, Texas, which was a church that, that reached, reaches college and young professionals uh, by the thousands each and every year. So the church grew. The demands began to increase, and slowly, Matt began to lose his passion for the Lord and his passion for ministry. How can that be when things seem to be going so well? How can you lose your passion for the Lord when you're in the Bible all the time? How can you lose your passion for the Lord when you are praying and you're leading people to faith, when you're seeing disciples made, when you're being invited to do all of these wonderful things? How can you lose your passion for the Lord? Well, this is how it happened to Matt, and this is how it happens to a lot of pastors. Sunday's always coming. You see, I turn around on Monday morning and I realize I got to preach again multiple times this week in some form or fashion. And so what was once devotion to the Lord becomes work, right? I don't get my sermons off the internet. And that's a good thing, right? I want to get before the Lord. I want to get before his word. I want to spend my time in this study. I want to do the work. And that work can be work. He began to lose his passion for the Lord and all of the preparation, all of the task, and all of the things that come with doing the Lord's business. So Jesus' words in Matthew 13 reveal that this is where strain in the child begins, when our hearts become dull to the things of God, when, when, when we no longer have a love and affection for him. And when our minds become cluttered, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 15. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I 
would heal them. Matt wasn't finished with Christianity. At this point, four years or so ago, he was finished with his calling. It was sort of like Jonah. God is saying, go, and, and Matt's saying, no, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do those things that I've been doing. I want to go do something else. In reality, he and his wife had already decided that this is what they were going to do. It was time for them to step away. It was time for them to do something else. A after all, right, we're all called to ministry, and so we just kind of redefine what ministry is. But for Matt, God's call was vocational, pastoral ministry. And yet he and his wife had said no. Well, not longer after they had come to this conclusion that they would step down, Matt was out hunting with a friend of his, and this friend was a, a billionaire. He owned an investment property company of some sort. And I, I think he tells the story. They were riding around in the truck on his ranch, probably. And, and, and this friend just kind of looks over at him out of the blue and says, Matt, have you ever thought about leaving the ministry? You, can you imagine? You contemplated this. You and your wife sort of decided that you're going to do this. And out of the blue, the, a man, a friend of yours, asked you the question, have you thought about leaving the ministry? And Matt just says, honestly, actually we have. In fact, we've decided we're going to leave the ministry. We're going to go do something else. Just not sure what that is at this point. The friend explained that he would be perfect, a perfect fit for a vice president's position in his company. Told him what the job kind of was going to be about, what it was going to encompass. Told him the salary. He says, you know what, I think we'd start you out at $1.2 million a year. Hallelujah. Right? God has opened the door. I mean, it's wide open. Let's walk through it. How do you turn down $1.2 million? Just think of the tithe off that from a pastor standpoint. That's what we always think about, right? That's $120,000 to my church. It's a good rationale. He was blown away by the offer. He was going to take the offer. I mean, he's already in his mind. He's made that up. Didn't even have to talk, into the, didn't have to, talk to the wife. In the midst of that conversation, though, there in that truck, Matt's phone rang. He didn't recognize the number, so he declined it. Phone rings again, immediately doesn't know the number. It's the same thing, declines it, comes a third time. He's like, well, this is three rings in a row. I, I guess I need to take it. Answers the phone, and it's his doctor. Matt, I need to tell you something. Well, what would happen the week before is Matt had had a mole taken off his ear, and uh, the pathology report came back, and the doctor was calling to tell him. And the reason it was three calls is because it was serious. He told him that he had melanoma and he needed to come in. They needed to do something immediately. He goes in the doctor, I don't know, a couple days later or whatever. And turns out they got it early and it was no big deal. Things were kind of obviously uh, reckless for a couple weeks. And they begin to die out. He begins to think about that conversation with the billionaire in the truck and the $1.2 million offer on the table. Picks up the phone and he's about to call and immediately gets a call from one of his best friend's wife. This friend, who's, I think he said in his early 50s, dies of a heart attack, just kind of drops dead and just throws everything into a tizzy. And Matt does the funeral, and after a few weeks, when things begin to calm down, he again goes back to that offer that's on the table, $1.2 to walk away. As he's considering it now for the second or third time, one Saturday, he's out doing some hunting on the deer lease, and he gets a call from his teenage son's phone. 
He answers the phone, and he's told that his son has been in a wreck. The signal's not good, and so the call drops. He can't get a a, a call back into the number, and so he heard enough to know where the son was, and so he hops in the truck, and he heads the the, the 115-minute drive back to where the hospital is. He makes it in about 45 minutes, and all the way there, that Matt is having a one-sided conversation with God, and it's vocal, and it's loud. God, why are you doing this? What's going on? I've just been faithful. What are you doing in my life? What are you doing in these situations? He's thinking the worst, just like we would, all the way to the hospital, just wondering if his son is dead, if he's crippled, if he's hurt. He had no idea what the condition was. When he arrived, he learned that the vehicle had been rolled multiple times in the accident, but his son actually walked away with just a few minor scratches. Well, the accident and the thought of his son dying literally shook Matt. And he calls his executive pastor and he says, man, I just don't think I can preach tomorrow. Just all that's happened and, and what's happened today, I just don't think I can preach today, tomorrow. Can you help me find somebody? The next morning, Matt didn't want to go to church uh, for a lot, probably a lot of reasons. Probably mad at God for all these bad things that are happening But he went anyway because that's what the senior pastor is supposed to do when you're in town, right? You go to church. So he goes. His heart's not in it. The visiting preacher is a friend of his. He has no idea what he's going to preach. His friend steps up to the pulpit like I did just a moment ago, and he opens his Bible and says, turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 3 and 4. The pastor knows Jonah 1. He knows the story of Jonah. He knows Jonah's running from God, and God is sending a storm to call him down. So you can imagine the timing of all of this. The preacher just was describing the events taking place. He's setting the context of the, 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 the passage here. And in the midst of all of that, he stops and, and says, Man, I, I'm going to do something I don't usually do. In fact, I probably never did this. But if the Lord is sending a storm after you and you recognize that in your life, I want you to just stand your, to your feet. No one stands to their feet. Matt's, I'm assuming, sitting on the front row like I would be. And his heart's just beating, probably out of his chest. And he's under deep conviction. And he knows that all of this is for him. All of it. But what is he going to do before his church? I mean, if he stands up, what are they going to think? But under deep conviction, wanting to be obedient to the Lord, he stands to his feet and recognizes that it's for me. God is sending a storm after Matt Carter. The senior pastor of the Austin Stone Church stands up and recognizes that he'd been running from God's call in his life. He recognizes that he'd been manufacturing a way out of it, really working to subverse the will of God, right? It's very similar to Jonah. Jonah gets on a ship and goes to, to gets on a ship in Joppa and goes to Tarshish. Here's Matt Carter working behind the scenes to subvert the will of God for his own life. And then rationalizing all the steps in between. It was in that moment of confession, in that moment of of Matt coming home to the Lord, that the Lord began to heal his heart, began to restore his passion for the Lord and for ministry. You know, there are times in our lives when the bad things happening all around us can only be explained by recognizing that it's God who's doing it. This happens because, as Eric Redmond states, the Lord will make a storm to wreak havoc and wreck our plans when we readily dismiss obedience 
to his commands. This is what Jonah's experience is. Look in Jonah chapter 1. Let's read verses 4 and 5. The Bible says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Father, this morning, our prayer is that you would take these two verses of Scripture and what they say about what you will do and in love and in grace and in justice to the child of God who is on the run. Father, I pray that you'd help us to see here that when we disobey, we enact the discipline of God. And yet, in the disobedience that we're doing and the discipline that you're doing, we see the grace and the mercy of God. We see it in Jonah's life. God, I pray that we'd be able to see it in our own hearts and in our own lives. So this morning, I pray that we would have ears to hear. God, that our eyes would be open, that our heart would be receptive to whatever you want to speak to each individual. Each individual believer. God, each individual that you would be calling to faith in Jesus in this room or on our live stream. Give us ears to hear, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we've seen in this story that Jonah is a man that's on the run from God. He's, as I just said, he's seeking to subvert the will of God. He, he is the prophet of God. Remember, he's the prophet of God that's been called to preach, to, to say, thus saith the Lord. And he's been used in a mighty way. He's used to strengthen and, and expand the borders of Israel under Jeroboam II, years before, I believe. He follows in the line of great men, such as Elijah and Elisha. I told you last Sunday that, that I believe that, he, that he, they were his predecessors, that he falls in that line, that he learned how to walk with God. He learned how to speak for God from men like Elijah and Elisha. However, over time, Jonah's heart has grown dull. His ears can barely hear the word of God, and his eyes have closed. His subtle disregard for the Lord's word has resulted in rebellion. We talked about that last Sunday. He has rebelled against God's command to go, which in reality is a rejection of God's lordship over his life. Anytime we say no to the Lord, we're saying no, not just to the command, we're saying no to his lordship, his authority over us. And so Jonah, verse 3 tells us, went down to Jonah, Joppa, and he found a ship that would take him as far as possible from the Lord's calling on his life. Tarshish was at the other end of the known world for Jonah. If he's in modern-day Palestine, the upper part of modern-day Israel, then he would have been going northeast to Nineveh, up there to the northern part of Iraq. And if he was going to get on a ship and go to Tarshish, he would be heading west of the Mediterranean to the southwestern corner of the country of Spain. It was the farthest he could go from the Lord's calling. And so, in response to his disobedience and his outright rebellion, what does God do? Verse 4 tells us that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. 
You know, I've been to the Mediterranean a number of times, and I remember a few years ago, we're sitting there on the coast. We used to rent this apartment right there on the beach, one of the beaches in, in, in Badalona, one of the suburbs, northern suburbs of Barcelona. Beautiful, beautiful area. Some of you have been there with me. And Mark, you've been there with me. And I remember my first time there, it was in October, and, and, and this incredible storm. I mean, we've seen big storms in America, but uh, sitting there on the ocean and, and, and you got the cool breeze coming uh, down from the mountains, you got the hot air coming off the, the beach area, and those two things collide right there on the, the shore of Barcelona. And so when I read, especially in the book of Acts and other places in the New Testament about storms in the Mediterranean, I've seen some of that. Not in a ship, thankfully, but I've seen how fierce and, and, and mighty those storms can be. And so storms are common on the Mediterranean. And surely these sailors had experienced just about any storm you can imagine on the seas. They had not just woke up that morning and, and said, I want to be a sailor. No, these were experienced men. But this particular storm was different. It was so intense that the ship threatened to break up. We, we could translate that, that it was determined to break up. The idea here is, is that God was sending a storm that was going to get the attention of everyone on that ship. And every life would have been lost if Jonah hadn't recognized what was going on. So the mariners, the sailors, recognize that the storm had a divine aspect to it. It's not just because they were primitive. I believe they fully understood someone has, let me, let me just put it in some, some really easy vernacular, ticked off their God and he sent a storm after this ship. So they recognized it. They discerned that it was a divine reaction towards some sort of sin. They began to cry out to their individual gods, and, and they had all kinds of gods. They had, they had deities that were kind of local deities. They had the pantheon of gods in, in Roman and Greek mythology. They had all kinds of, uh, of little g-gods to pray to, to, to beseech on behalf of whoever to appease to try to get them out of this situation. And so they're all calling upon their gods. And we're going to see later next week that, that they go and they wake up Jonah and say, hey, you call on your God. We've all called on ours and you call on yours. We're in, a, we're in a mess. The situation was so dire that it was, they were compelled to call on every God imaginable. At the same time, they did something else. They cast over the cargo. They began to lighten the ship to help them to be able to maintain uh, uprightness in the ocean. So there in the midst of the storm that, terrified those that, that was terrifying those experienced sailors, what is Jonah doing? He's sleeping. He's down in the hull of the ship. He's down under, uh, under the, 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 the top of the ship. He's sleeping in the bowels. Leslie Allen explains it this way. He says, The storm that so alarmed the crew served only to rock Jonah into deeper slumber, blissfully unaware of all the trouble he is causing. That's an interesting. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But, but the sailors are beside themselves. Experienced sailors. They've seen everything imaginable on the sea. But they are beside themselves. And the man of God is under the ship, sleeping away, oblivious to the fact that he's the reason their lives are in peril. It's amazing. Jonah's disobedience was met with God's disciplining hand. With that context in mind, I want to just point out four things that I believe we need to know as it relates to disobedience and the discipline of God. Here's the first thing I want you to see. God always responds 
to sin. Do you believe that? God always responds to sin. I quoted this probably the last two Sundays, but Paul says in Galatians 6-7, God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you'll reap. That's a James Taylor paraphrase of that verse, but that's what Paul says. Whatever you sow, you will reap. And we understand this. In fact, we celebrate this. We love justice. We believe in justice. We believe in the law being carried out. We, we believe in, in things need to be rectified when there's a wrong committed. See, we desire justice. We inherently know that justice should be served against those who steal, those who kill, those who harm others. We know this inherently. Now, we're rewriting that in our culture today. When we're letting those who've committed crimes off because of whatever reason. We're, we're, we are just messed up in our culture today. But in the heart, down in the deep recesses of who we are, we understand justice. We understand that there needs to be a recompense for a wrong committed. Where does this desire come from? Where does it originate? Well, it comes from God. We're made in his image, and he is a righteous and holy God. He is a God of justice. That's what the Bible says about him. He's righteous and just. Listen to Isaiah 30, verse 18. For the Lord is a God of justice. That's who God is. Isaiah 61, verse 18. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. And listen to what he says. And I will faithfully give them their recompense. You see, God is a God of justice, and he's not going to wait for someone else to bring the justice. He is the God of justice who will bring that. He's a God of righteousness and justice. Psalm 11, verse 7, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is who God is, and this is the God we were created in the image of. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us that we desire to see justice done. It's inherent within our makeup. So the testimony of Scripture is that God always responds to sin. He never glosses over it. Well, I don't know if I believe that. Sometimes people seem to get away with it. Show me in scripture where anyone gets away with sin. Oh, you may escape the jail. You may escape some sort of penalty in this life, but the Bible assures us that it doesn't matter if you can escape everything in this world. You won't escape the final judgment, right? These sex offenders that have been so prevalent in the news these days, and, and they seem to get off. And the reason we think they get off is because they die prematurely before the court date even happens. Let me just set you at rest this morning. They will stand before the Lord and give an account of every wrong thing they did. God does not gloss over sin. He does not pass over it. He always responds to it. He did it to Adam in the garden. Right? Adam's sin was blatant disobedience. God says, don't eat of that. What does Adam do? Man, that was really good. Can I have another bite? He's kicked out of the garden. Everything God said was going to happen, happened. God didn't disregard the sin of man during the days of Noah. God didn't come down to, to Noah and observe the, the, the gross immorality that was taking place and say, I love them so much, I'm just going to give them another chance. No, grace and mercy had been extended for a long period of time. And God in that moment says, my grace and mercy is going to extend to Noah and his family because he's righteous, but the rest of these reprobates will die. It's a picture of hell and salvation right there in the ark and the waters. 
God didn't gloss over the, king of, the, the sin of King Saul when he offered the sacrifice. You remember that? I mean, he had done a lot of wicked things, and he kind of gets to this moment where he's wavering. Uh, uh, the prophet Samuel's not there. Too many S's in the Bible. I had them all going through my head at the same time. Uh, Samuel's not made it to the place where the offering needs to be sacrificed, and, and they're about to go to battle. The, the armies began to fracture and leave, and so Saul takes it upon himself to step into the role of prophet and priest instead of king and offers the sacrifice. And what does the Lord do? The kingdom has been removed. King David is the successor, but God didn't gloss over his, his sin either. David, one day, when he should have been going out to battle, stays behind, I believe, because he knew what he was going to find. He's watching a, a young lady take a bath, and you know the story there. He sins for her, he sins with her, and then he covers it up. The Bible tells us that after a period of time, a year or so, the prophet Nathan came to rebuke him. The scholars would tell us this, that during that 12 to 18 months between David's sin and Nathan's rebuke, there was a spiritually dry season in David's life. It's part of the storm. And then Nathan comes to say, you are the man. You're the sinner. God never glosses over sin. You see, as a good father, God disciplines his children. It's the second thing I need you to, to hear. Man, how did the time get away so fast? I'm just getting started. This is like point number two. Number two, God's discipline is measured to get the attention of the sinner. God's discipline is measured to get the attention of the sinner. See, when Jonah fled and came to Joppa, what does he find? Exactly what he wanted. I need to get away from God's calling. I need to get away from God's presence. I need a ship. I need it fast. I need it now. I need it to take me as far away as possible. What does he find? Exactly what he wanted. He finds a ship, it's headed to Tarshish. It's very likely that Jonah in his warped spirit might have recognized this as the Lord's favor, justifying his, uh, 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 solidifying his justification for rebellion. I mean, think about that. I mean, it maybe goes back to Matt Carter. I don't know what Matt was thinking, but I know what I'd be thinking. If I'm wrestling with, my, this is not really my thing anymore. I'm, I'm going to go do something else than ministry. And then all of a sudden a door opens up and says, I'm going to pay you this incredible salary. I'd have been thinking, hallelujah, God has opened the floodgates of heaven. Malachi 3.10 is coming true for me. I have sowed into the Lord and he's sowing back to me. That's what I would have been justifying. Maybe that's what Jonah is thinking as he comes to Joppa. Here's a ship. I, I'm running from the Lord and he's provided it for me. This is surely God's call on my life. And yet, Sinclair Ferguson points out that the ship anchored there in Joppa Harbor was not meant to be a means of escape from God's clearly revealed word, but in fact the most terrible instrument in the hands of God to bring his servant back to his senses. So what Jonah begins to see as a blessing from God is actually a curse from God. What we see here is the Lord will hurl storms at his children to the degree needed to turn them from their sinful ways and back on track in his will. Ring it a bell with any of us? That God would actually do that? I mean, Matt Carter in the story I shared with you, he, he realized that this is what the Lord was doing in him and to him. 
He does it in Jonah's life. In those two situations, what we see are are storms that are very unique, very individualized, very specific. And sometimes that happens, but it doesn't always happen that way. Many times the storm that the Lord hurls toward us is just the consequences that come with the decision we've made. Right? Because this is so prevalent in America today, and unfortunately so prevalent in the church today, what is the storm to the man who wants to walk out on his wife and kids? Well, you just kiss half of your salary goodbye. Just go ahead and recognize that your kids are always going to live with the scar that you're creating in their life. Just go ahead and recognize that you have now lost your testimony as a father of Jesus and you're living as an unbeliever because you're unrepentant of sin. And Think of all those consequences. Sometimes you lose your job because of this. That's the storms that are just natural consequences that come with your decision, but the Lord allows that to take place. Why? For your good, to get you back on track so that you'll come to your senses, recognize sin, turn from that sin, and through faith, trust the Lord for forgiveness. God will use the necessary means, the measure of the storm will be exactly what needs to be to bring you back to himself. You see... Nathan's rebuke to King David opened his eyes. It was up until that point he was refusing to repent. He wouldn't even acknowledge that he had sinned. He was trying to make the things work, right? Can you imagine that? You're the king. You've killed one of your 30 men, one of your 30 mighty men. You've killed him. You've covered it up. You've taken his wife as your own. Now you're going to raise a son, and everybody in the kingdom knows about it, but no one's talking about it, at least openly. And he's trying to make that work. And all of a sudden, God steps in and says, you know what, David, I know all that you've done, and it's never escaped my eyes. And there's a reckoning for that. That natural consequence was met with a unique storm of its own. God killed his newborn son. What do we learn from this? We should learn this. We should never think that we can sin against the Lord and be immune from its consequences. In fact, the Bible makes the exact opposite abundantly clear. I want you to hear from Psalm, verse, Psalm 7, verses 12 through 16. Here's what the psalmist says. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. God's discipline is measured to draw that individual, that child of God, back into obedience. He does it in all sorts of ways. Third thing I need you to see, and if you could listen a little faster, it would help me out here. Nate, you liked that, didn't you, buddy? The consequences of sin are not isolated to the sinner. I want to make sure you get this this morning. Just as in the case of King David that I've referenced a couple times, Jonah's sin didn't just affect him. Who's it affecting in this situation? Sailors. The people in Nineveh. I want you to just go with me for these two, these two categories. Jonah is asleep under the, uh, under the deck of the ship. He's down there. I mean, he's found a cot or some hammock or something, and he's sawing logs. He is out to lunch. 
He is oblivious to what's going on above. The people on the deck are, are literally fearing for their lives. They think the ship is going to break. Why? Because it's about to break up. They're experienced sailors. They know that this is dangerous water for them. And if Jonah doesn't wake up, if Jonah doesn't recognize, and we're getting get to that in, in, in a week or two, but if Jonah doesn't recognize, hey, I'm the reason for the storm, throw me overboard, they would have all died. I'm convinced of this. What about the people in Nineveh? God says go. Jonah says no. He flees to go to Joppa to get on a ship to go to Tarshish. All right, so that would have taken some time. You don't get on a plane back then and, and you're there in a half an hour. So in the meantime, from when God says go to Nineveh and Jonah said no and was headed to Tarshish, we don't know how far out into the Mediterranean he is. And by the time he got coughed up from the, the great fish and, and, and finally makes it to Nineveh, how long was it? How many people died during those weeks, if not months? How many people died and met a devil's hell? So your sin never just affects you. Your sin affects everyone that's around you. Your decision to walk out on your family affects your kids, your spouse, your friends, your extended family, your church family, your community, the people at work. Everybody is affected by your decision. Whatever the sin is, it's not isolated only to you. The Lord's going to hurl a storm, and it's going to encompass all kinds of collateral damage. Here's the fourth thing. Sinful engagement can numb you to its effects. Sinful engagement can numb you to its effects. You see, in the midst of this one-of-a-kind storm, again, Jonah is asleep, like some of you this morning. Wake up. I just said that because I saw one yawn. I'm not pointing out who it was, but I understand. It's, music wasn't as high up bit tempo, and it got you a little slumberish. It's Ricky's fault. <laughs> I had to pull a one-liner for you, dude. So Jonah's asleep. What, the sailors, like I said earlier, they're overwhelmed. They're praying to their guys. They're doing everything they know to keep the ship upright. It doesn't make sense to me why you throw the cargo over. To me, that seems like you'd be so light. It would just cash you wherever you want. But I'm not a sailor. All I know how to do is a little bitty boat in the, in the uh, lake that doesn't ever catch a storm. But that's what they're doing. They, they're doing what they know to do to survive. And so while Jonah is, is asleep, while Jonah is numb to all of this, they're frantic about the whole thing. The storm just continues to make him fall deeper and deeper into sleep. Now, scholars always, when you read commentaries and other types of works on, on the Bible, they always offer up their thoughts on things. And so scholars will offer some, some reasons for Jonah's sleeping. And some would say, well, Jonah, you know, he traveled a long ways. He's exhausted from the travel or the emotional exhaustion because he's running from God or, you know, just whatever. I think it's because he is completely numb to what the Lord is doing in his life. He can't even recognize it. So whatever the reason, what we see here is that in the midst of the storm, Jonah was numb to the very thing God sent to arouse him. How in the world does that happen? Go back to what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 15. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they've closed. Jonah's eyes are closed as he sleeps. His ears are so dull that he can't hear the, the thunder cracking outside. He can't hear the waves slamming against the ship. I've been on a cruise ship 
uh, a few times. I remember on our honeymoon, Karen and I's honeymoon 18 and a half years ago, we were in the Caribbean in January in this incredible cold front came all the way through America, and it was going down into the Key West area of Florida. We're coming back from Belize. We're going to supposed to swim with the dolphins in Key West in the middle of January, toward the end of January. We have no clothes except for hot weather clothes. We get to Key West, and it's like 40 degrees with a 25-mile-an-hour wind. It was horrible. The night before that, as we were in the ocean coming back, we hit such incredible waves, it would slam you up against the wall on a huge cruise ship. I, I know what it's like to be in that sort of storm. Can't imagine sleeping through it, much less in, in that ship, much less in a small ship like Jonah would have been in. But here's the deal. Sin numbs a believer's sensitivity to God's activity. See, subtle disregard for and disobedience to God's word, little by little, numbs you to its effects. I talked last week about how I believe the reason Jonah is in this situation is because little by little he began to disregard God's word. Once he's saying, here, Jeroboam II, you're, you're going to go out, you're going to conquest, we're going to expand the, the, the borders of Israel, God's going to protect you as his people. Now he's running from God rather than speaking for God. How does that happen? Little by little, subtle disregard. And your world could be burning down around you. And you have no idea it is the result of your own choices. You're oblivious and fail to see God's hand over it. That's what's happening in this story. And the thought of being numb to God's discipline ought to shake us today. How do we relate this back to us? Well, God says go. Jonah says no. He finds the ship. He goes to Tarshish. He goes down into it, Right? He found exactly what he wanted. And I said last week what Mac Brunson has said. When a man seeks to move away from God, it's always down. We need to recognize that. When we're moving away from the Lord, we're not going up. We're not elevating our lives. We're descending further and further and further down into depravity. What Jonah's no shows us is that rebellion against God's call is a rejection of God himself. It also shows us that disobedience brings the discipline of God. We should not be surprised when God hurls the storm. Why? Because he's just and he is righteous. He's a good father. And good fathers discipline their children. Which we probably need more of in America, but this is not a time for a sermon about parenting. That'll come for another day. But good fathers discipline their children. And so this morning, if you look at your life, you're like, man, I'm, I don't feel any discipline from the Lord. I, I know I'm kind of not walking where I need to be walking, and there's no discipline whatsoever. Are you a child of God? If you are a child of God, at some point there's got to be some sort of discipline in your life to bring you back into obedience. How do we keep ourselves out of these storms? Let me give you two preventative actions, and we will move into a time of response. Two preventative actions that's going to keep us free from God's discipline. Number one, Obedience to God's word. If you want to stay out of the storm of life, disciplining storm of life. Let me differentiate here. Sometimes God just throws a storm your way to uh, deepen your faith. It's not always because you're walking at a guilty distance, but many times it is. So to keep ourselves out of discipline, obedience is crucial. The safest thing you could ever do is obey. I want my kids to know that as well. The safest thing you could do in our home is obey what your mama and daddy says. It'd be a whole lot better for you and your upbringing. 
You'll never be in danger of the consequences for disobedience if you do not disobey. And so let's read the word and let's obey the word. That's what it takes to stay out of the disciplining hand of God. Number two, abiding in God's presence. What does Jonah do? Hey, man, I want you to go. I'm going to go the other way. Jonah flees from the presence of God. Rather than abiding, he's fleeing from the presence. You see, sin always wants to remove you from the presence of God. When, when you get caught up in sin, what is the, one of the first things that goes in your life? Time in God's word, devotionally, and time with God's people corporately. You don't want those things. Why? Because that's where the presence of God is. Stay close and clean, in other words. Better yet, stay close to stay clean. My friend and mentor always says that. Stay close and clean. And this morning I was, I was reading through this again, and I was like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a little altar there. We need to stay close to stay clean. Because I can't stay clean on my own. It's only the presence of God in my life that, that breeds or, or fosters righteousness. So what in your life has the Lord put his finger on today? I don't believe that the Lord uh, opens his word to our hearts just for it to fall on deaf ears. I believe the message is for every one of us. What is the Lord speaking to you? As a Christian, as he revealed an area of sin that needs to be confessed, needs to be repented of, turned over to him. The question is, will you listen? Will you obey? Will you follow that leading of the Spirit, that nudge of the Spirit? Or will you do what Jonah did? Find the nearest ship and head west. What happened to him? Well, he learned that it's a futile escape. Maybe today you recognize your need for Jesus as Lord and Savior. You know that you're broken. You understand that he's the one who could put the broken pieces of your life back together. And so the question for you as, a, as, an, as an unbeliever, a person who's not in relationship with Jesus, what would keep you from calling upon his name? I've had the opportunity to share the gospel a few times in recent uh, days. And um, I remember this one, it was one of them was a phone conversation with, with an individual. And I just, I just said, man, hey, Romans 10, 13 is still true. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What would keep you from that this morning? God is loving and gracious and kind. And even in his discipline, he's loving, gracious, and kind.